Hello and welcome back to the brand new series of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. You are joined today by your host, Will Davis Coleman, and as always, my co-host, Patrick Courtney. Hi, Will. Season three, we're back. I know, it's so good to be back on the airwaves, which is such an old-fashioned expression, but I'm going with it. Yeah, I don't think it counts as airwaves. Can you say, like, web, internet waves? Web, web waves, waves? Web waves? Binary quite... code? Yeah, something like that. The, the binary waves. The ones <laughs> and zero waves. Something like that, yeah. It doesn't have the same ring to it, somehow. No, no, not quite. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for continuing to listen to uh, the Cloak and Dagger podcast. Uh, for all our new listeners... May I suggest that you go back and listen to something from series two or series one, where you'll hear lots of grisly assassinations from across history and across the planet. Uh, I mean, if you're listening, you might as well stay for this episode, but then move back and listen to our back category. (laughs) Back (laughs) catalogue. Back catalogue. Yes. Already going (laughs) off the rails. (laughs) No, no, but uh, seriously, thank you so much for listening. Um, At the moment, we are going through a slight change in direction uh, in terms of this is going to be a series about cities rather than assassinations. So for the last two series, the people who haven't listened so far, uh, we really did focus on the assassinations. And the thing that we thought limited that approach was there's only so many ways to assassinate someone because it's not really murdering assassinations tend to be clean and sort of quick so it's not yeah you know they kind of they were all gunshots or stabbings really i mean there's a couple of poisonings and some other ones but mostly you get shot or you get stabbed and that usually depends on has the gun been invented yet so it's not the most exciting (laughs) uh series and although we did go across the world into many different like political landscapes and strange places across the world you know you, you you get a bit bored with all this bloody stuff Although, yeah. saying that, we still have probably a lot of bloody stuff in this series. But, you know, at least we're trying to branch out a bit to some other more interesting stories. Exactly. We worked out that when we were doing the research on the later assassinations that we looked into last series, we found ourselves actually being much more immersed into the world surrounding the assassination rather than the assassination itself. Yeah. So see it as a difference of perspective in this new series, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, unlike last uh the last two series, which have been six episodes apiece, we're actually doing a double... We're doubling up on our episodes, basically. So we're going to have 12 episodes, you lucky, lucky listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same price as well. So yeah, it's still it's free. It's a great deal, yeah. <laughs> um, the reason for that was that we want to um, bring stories to you from both of our perspectives about different cities each week. And we realised that we couldn't fit a story of ours each into each into one episode because they became too long. So we thought, well, why not double it up? So each each city will take two episodes to tell. So this week we'll be starting with New York and we will hear from Patrick to begin with about a story. And then in our episode that we'll release next week, you'll hear from me telling you about a, a different story from a different time in a very different New York. So yeah. that's how it's going to play. We think it's kind of a cool way to explore the cities because, you know, we still want to really dive into lots of cool and different times in history for all our cities. So there'll be six cities, but 12 stories from uh, and then two two stories apiece for each city, which we think is a cool way to explore how a city grows and changes. And actually, it's fun because we'll also try and do it. So each episode, each two episodes are chronological in, in chronological order. So that means the second episode, we can kind of really explore how a city has changed or how it's different from how it was 
tens or hundreds or even thousands of years previously bit of a harder one if it's a thousand years because it's hard to see how much things you know things have changed (laughs) a lot in between but you know we'll do our best i think what's kind of interesting is how certain stories about like cities can still have same stories throughout their history because of the type of city is its location its people its background uh you know the politics and the stories can actually kind of repeat each other um as as history always does repeat itself it does, and uh, it's it, we we explore sort of the fundamentals around a, a city's identity and what makes a city tick. So yeah, um, I hope you enjoy this series. Please let us know um, on our Instagram, Cloak and Dagger Podcast, and yeah, just DM us or you can get in touch however you like by carrier pigeon if you like. But we love hearing <laughs> from you guys. We you guys we have quite a vocal uh, audience now, which we really like, and also we're fairly global now. We've got listeners in Australia, um, New Zealand, Romania, Sweden, um, Canada. I know there's a few West Coast people uh, of the US as well. So we're all over the place. So if you are listening in any of those places, please tell a friend and recommend us and we'll grow in your area. Fingers crossed. And yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we'll be covering a city either near to you or where you live. And then you can tell us how we got your history wrong and we were complete idiots about when we talked about this one thing. It was an entirely different thing, but we'll try and do our best. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, welcome back and let's get into it. So, as Will said, uh, I am kicking us off this season with our first New York story. And I'll be taking us back to... uh, Wait a minute. Aren't I doing the intro to New York? Yes. Yes, you are. Good point. I was so you suddenly have to thinking, start. am I introing, doing, I was thinking, no, 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 Will, don't interrupt him because you're going to yeah, do yeah, the yeah. intro after yeah, yeah, he's yeah. done his bit. And I was like, no, no, no. That's you're right. I have, to, I have to be quiet for a bit. No, 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 no. Please don't. I was just saying, I, I was just trying to make sure I got it right. Um, no, but you so. should start this now because okay. it should go straight into yours and then go on to mine. Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you want to explain also that one of us will do an... In- uh, actually, don't, you don't need to explain it. It's, it's no, not, I think they'll get yeah. it. I think yeah, they've yeah. got enough. So. Mm. so to start off this brand new series on cities, let me introduce you to the city of New York. So uh, many of us... If I, I'd be surprised if any listener has never heard of New York City. But it if would you be extraordinary <laughs> if no one has heard of New York. If we are the first ones to tell you about New York City. I mean, it's probably the most famous city in the world. It's got to be, Realistically, right? yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I we'll think... be comparing it to some other famous cities in this series. But I think New York probably, yeah, it's got to, I, I can't imagine. It must, because it's also like a city you learn when you're really small, because it's got that amazing skyline. You just kind of yeah. learn about these big cities across the world. Exactly. Um, but for those of you who probably, if you can't put it on a map, that is definitely excusable because it, it might be a little bit complicated for some people. And as we've said before, we're not geographers. We are historians. Um, but it is in uh, the northeast part of the United States of America in its own state, also called New York. And the reason why it was inhabited to begin with was because it's one of the largest natural harbors on the east coast of North America. So it's not that surprising that it's built up to be the metropolis that it is today. Yeah, um, cities are, as... tend to be built on ports and next to like important trade routes and stuff like that. Exactly, yeah. Um, and also, there's also this idea that uh, New York uh, began as a uh, white settlers' 
uh, place. But actually, there was already settlement on Manhattan Island long before um, uh, Giovanni de Verrazzano, who was the guy who founded it. Uh, he was a Florentine in 1524. But uh, before he even got into the New York Bay, there had been a Algonquin, American Algonquin tribe called the Lenape. Or I, I've probably said that wrong. It's L-E-N-A-P-E. Lenape or Lenape? Lenape? I, I think Lenape. I think Lenape sounds right. Well, they they've been there for a hell of a lot longer. Probably, I mean, we don't know how long they were there, but they were definitely there before the uh, before the white settlers turned up. So when um, the the first records we have come from from Manhattan Island, it's when Giovanni de Verrazzano arrived in 1524 into Lower New York Bay, and unlike when Christopher Columbus uh, sailed the ocean blue and murdered everybody. Uh, <laughs> Verrazzano didn't actually have, he met the Lenape tribes who were there, but he, it actually wasn't a violent meeting from either side. In oh. fact, yeah, in fact, um, the, the Lenape uh, came up to the Italian's galleon um, in a canoe and offered to do some trading. And oh, so, wow. yeah, so that that's actually how it began. And obviously, I'm not saying that it always was that way, but it did seem to go like that. So they were um, expert trappers. So they had lots of furs to sell uh, to the um, to the Europeans who did, had, you know, like bear skins and mm. I, I guess deer skins. I don't actually know what they'd be selling. Wolf skins? North wolf America. Skins. So, yeah, wolf skins, deer skins, maybe. Maybe bear? Poss- I bear. Yeah, I think probably raccoon. bear. <laughs> Racco- yeah, racco- raccoon, beaver. Yeah, yeah. But that is how, actually, um, the relationship with uh, the white settlers began. So all the way up, um, if we fast forward to about 1625, um, the Dutch had first settled on Governor's Island before moving to Manhattan uh, a little bit later. Um, And they were selling uh, European cloth and beer to the Native Americans for furs, which they could sell back in Europe for a hell of a lot of money. Mm. Um, So I think that's quite an easy trade for the the Dutch there because the Dutch uh, cloth industry was insane and beer was very cheap to make as long as you could grow hops um, whereas you couldn't get that as a native american apparently so yeah um anyway uh they ev- eventually buy manhattan island from the lenape for 60 guilders which is approximately 900 dollars in today's money so Nine- uh, that- gee oh wow <laughs> the whole island of manhattan for 900 dollars. the whole island yeah hell god yep. they got screwed out of that didn't they and they they called the new settlement new amsterdam which is the original name, I guess, for the white settlement of New York. So that's how it all began. However, the Dutch didn't hold it for very long. Within 40 years, uh, the British had literally almost walked straight in in 1664. And because it wasn't well defended, the Dutch had to surrender. And in the peace negotiations that happened later, the Dutch ceded uh, New Amsterdam to the British. And as soon as they did that, the British have always been good at renaming things, and New York got its name from the that Duke of York who was there at the time, who would go on to become the future King James II of England. So, no um, way! Yeah, so New York isn't named after Old York; it's named no. after a guy who is—I don't know if he's—it was—he's the Duke of York, so he's in his title is York, but it's more named after the dude as opposed yeah. to the city. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's, I don't know if anyone else knew that, but that's, it's the Duke of York. It's like the Duke of New York, if you like, rather than... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. That doesn't ring quite as well. New Duke of York. 
That would, they, yeah. they could have just gone with that, which would have been a bit weirder. Can, <laughs> although, can I also cut in here? Because actually, I don't know if you know this, but I found out in my research, but there is a short time period where the Dutch got the city back. And in that time, they named it New Orange yes. because of the Duke of Orange, um, which I think, I mean, we did a we did a bad thing by stealing it back and renaming it New York. If it was called New Orange, the Big Apple <laughs> the Big being Apple. called New Orange yeah. would have been just fantastic. Wouldn't it? Um, but anyway, yeah, so, um, but once, apart from that hiatus in 1673, when it became New Orange, it has been <laughs> in, it was in English hands until the revolution in 1776, or actually, no, 1783, which is when the English lost it. And that, oh, lost it, uh, lost it to the Americans when the Americans, like, took it back, if, if yeah. you like. Um, but basically, uh, that is the opening to New York. It's an incredible place. If you're wondering what happened to the Lenape and why there aren't any Lenape still around, unfortunately, they went the way of very many Native American tribes who, and they died of European epidemics of flu and plague, which cut their numbers down to less than 200 by the year 1700. So, oh, God. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's um, the way of uh, many tribes, and I, I'm sure there was a lot of re, uh, lots of aggression against them as well. I'm not saying that they mm. only died from disease, but uh, it seems to have played a massive part. Um, yeah. So yeah, anyway, uh, up until uh, so from like 1674 to 1783, it was a British-controlled place, and it was sort of the capital of the 13 colonies, as it was known. Um, and I will now hand you over to Patrick, who's going to tell us a little bit more about that time period in New York's history. Yes, I am. So, yeah, so thank you for that uh, intro into this city that we're diving into. Um, and, yeah, as Will has said, I am exploring kind of America's birth, if you, if, if you want to put it that way, because <laughs> I will be looking at New York during what it's kind of just weird to describe because... I've written it down as New York during the British occupation, which is, as Will said, between 1776 and 1783, basically the entire length of the American Revolution. From the British's point of view, they probably wouldn't consider it an occupation because they would see it as like reclaiming the city that was already theirs. But yeah. I mean, although we are both British, I think we're both kind of on the side of the American revolutionaries during this war. We're very, yes. actually, if you've listened to us before, you know, we're not really on the side of the British pretty much at any point in history. Maybe, it's... like, during against the Vikings, I think we're okay. But yeah. all of this British Empire stuff, it's us ruling places we really have no business ruling. And so I, I consider this a British occupation. More have than, you? S yeah. I always think when it comes to the British, um, there's a Mitchell and Webb uh, skit where... Uh, Mitch and Webb are both dressed up in uh, Nazi uniforms, oh, yeah. skulls on their caps, <laughs> and he goes, "Are we the bad guys?" And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. just always think of that when I, I reread British history from a, a non-British perspective. And God, yeah, are we the bad yeah. guys for such a long period of time. Yeah, yeah it's got a it's lot pretty of messed up, especially as especially as most of the histories we learn growing up is from the British point of view and really doesn't show us as that we're, you know, we're like a civilizing force across the world helping lift these squalid nations out of their pagan tribal ways into modern civilized society, which exactly. to be fair is not the case here. I mean, they're dealing with Americans, uh, revolutionary Americans who are about just as civilized as we were. They still have the kind of concept of chivalry. They're also white 
um, Europeans coming over and stealing land from natives. But we won't dive into that. That's a whole and, different issue. And, and also both sides were very much into slavery. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so in, in, <laughs> to, 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 to sum up, we're not really on either one side. No one's really in the right here. But if I had to pick a side, I think I'd pick the American side. I think if I was around back then and in America, I would be so... I'd be, I'd be so. I mean, I th- I'd like to think I'd be, be very revolutionary, but there's a so chance maybe dead, I wouldn't. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of. <laughs> no, I mean historians, but I don't think American historians would do well. Would do good as British historians rewriting everything so it makes us look great. <laughs> um, but that's not what we're doing now. So yes, no. so New York at this time um, during the Revolutionary War, uh, as it has been kind of throughout its entire existence, is of an immense importance to the 13 colonies, to America and to Britain as well, mainly because it being the kind of centre of trade for the 13 colonies and for its strategic location for the war. As Will said, it's in the, which I didn't actually know, it's the, what did you say, the the largest uh, port in North America. Yeah, it is. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. which is pretty intense, but obviously going to be of paramount importance for any war because so much of war depends on supply lines and shipping and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so New York becomes this kind of centre of, of importance. In fact, George Washington, none other than George Washington, uh, is recorded <laughs> to have said that New York uh, is a post of infinite importance, which is a lovely way to say it. Yeah, he was very flowery with his language, wasn't he, old George? He was, yeah, yeah. He's very, he's, yeah, I quite, I like him, I like him. If, if anyone's seen a Turn on Amazon Prime, I mean, it's very good, and if you haven't, you should go watch it, but I actually find Washington and really annoying. Like, what, do you, what do you think? He was just uh, I, such a... I found him. I found trick. him kind of annoying in that. I think. Uh, I think the actor did. I mean, I'd say the actor, you know, did a good job. I've no idea what George Washington was like. He's very. <laughs> yeah. He's not. He's not the kind of aggressive, you know, bullish kind of leader. He's very not Churchill, and I'm not a big fan of Churchill by any regard, <laughs> anyway. But uh, you know, he's he's he seems a lot more. He's portrayed as a bit more unsure of himself uh, and a bit more gentle and a bit more softly spoken. Uh, which I think is fine, and and you know he won, so we can't you know <laughs> complain no, too much. Very true, very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so New York obviously is this big port. It's kind of like some. I saw someone online describe it as an ar- archipelago, which I guess it is. It's an odd way to describe it because you think of an archipelago as being ah. tropical and as being like you know Greek islands or maybe Caribbean islands, but really, New York is kind of an archipelago. I think by the definitions just a collection of small islands uh, around each other yeah it's, i don't know maybe a geographer can write in and tell me no i'm rubbish it's, <laughs> it's not an archipelago but obviously because it was such a center for uh, sea power um in fact one another um general during the war a rather infamous major general charles lee who if you know your american revolutionary history you'll know well he or remarked that great. Yeah, or Assassin's Creed. He remarked that whoever commands the sea must command the town when he's talking about New York. And if there's one thing the British Empire are known for, it's for commanding the fuck out of the sea. I mean, that was basically their whole thing. I mean, think of the, what was it? What was the anthem? Um, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah. That's like, like in it's... our <laughs> national consciousness. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. That's a good song. 
huge yeah it's a huge part of the british empire is how domineering they are um on the water and on the seas and so of course the biggest port in the 13 colonies during the war would end up falling to the british and that is exactly what happens so on the 27th of august 1776 a little over the year after the start of the revolution and only about a month after the declaration of independence because that actually came a bit later the war had kind of already kicked off at that point i didn't didn't know that yeah, I know, it's interesting. They kind of, they, you know, they had to get the paperwork through. War, you know, I know war can start early, but you've got to put in the hours to get the paperwork through. Sure. But on the 27th of August, 1776, in the very early hours of the morning, the people living on the Isle of Manhattan would have probably awoken to the sound of cannon fire to the south, where the Battle of Long Island was raging, which was one of the first major battles of the of the War of Independence. Mm. And then 19 days later, on the 15th of September, 1776, an expeditionary force of 32,000 British regulars, 10 ships of the line, and 20 frigates defeated Washington's troops at Kipps Bay and invaded Manhattan Island. You're reminding me of Hamilton. Uh, yes, of I know. <laughs> 32,000 troops ships in, in New, New York, York Harbor. Harbor. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could just sing the whole thing. That's, that kind of does a good job. I like the fact that they got that right. It is 32,000 uh, British that, regulars. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also, 10 ships of the line, which are these massive, you know, war frigates, um, mm-hmm. and then 20 standard frigates as well, uh, because obviously this was such a huge importance uh, for the kind of war. They threw everything at it. And I think this was where they, the first huge expeditionary force was sent, really, um, okay. after kind of losing a few battles earlier on in the war. This is Britain fighting back. This is them sending in their massive army. Um now, sure. what's interesting is that this invasion is actually carried out by two brothers. So most people who know American history will probably know the name General William Howe, who commanded the army at Kipps Bay and was the general like commander-in-chief of the British forces throughout the war. Which okay. I, I also thought commander-in-chief was an American thing, but it is part of british uh army things like it's it? it's oh, kind yeah. of a t- it's not a p- official rank it's a title that's given to someone who we're saying you are in charge of this war you are the commander like field in marshal in in later years would have had the same well no because fe- well i think few uh i think field marshal is a rank whereas commander oh. in chief could be given to probably any general i doubt it would be given to anyone lower but it could be kind of any rank depending on how big a force you're sending. Because this is by no means the largest. It's not all of Britain's strength. Because at this time, they're kind of at war with France, I think. I think there are all lots of people in this time period. Yeah, we're, we're fighting everyone at this time period. But are they at war with France? Or are they just I feel finished? like they I think they finished the Seven Years' War by that yes. point. Yes. So, yeah, so they've just finished a, a fairly major war with France, but they are fighting all over the place. And so, you know, the bulk of British forces is still spread across the world. This is actually not a huge uh, impact to them. And they also think they're going to send in the troops, put down the rebels and restore uh, order and loyalty to the crown. Sure. But what's interesting is so you have this guy, uh, General William Howe, but the he isn't the only Howe who's in this fight. His brother, his older brother, in fact, Admiral Richard Howe, is the admiral and is commanding the uh, the the ships that invade. How did that happen? Sorry. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, terrible, they're, terrible. They're a pretty uh, established family, I think. So, yeah, you've got General William Howe, you've got Admiral Richard Howe. Their older brother was also an admiral but died. 
So they're, you know, pretty well-established family. But it's these two wow. brothers, British, you know, up, proper upper-class toffs, you know, of sailing course. over there with their troops and putting down these rebels. But this is where the occupation, or what I'm considering the occupation of New York, begins. So New York, after British forces had invaded, New York kind of became British headquarters for the war. They established themselves there. General Howe would have um, situated them there for basically the entire war. And it's important to remember that if you're thinking about New York at this time, it's not this massive, sprawling, metropolitan megacity that it is today. It's actually a kind of only a small colonial trade port. Like, it's still a big city for the colonies, but they're still a burgeoning, small settlement across the seas from uh, Europe. You know, it's not a huge mm. place. And actually, the city itself is really kind of huddled right on the southern tip of Manhattan Island. We'll put a, a map in the Instagram. So if you if you follow us on at Cloak and Dagger podcast, did I say that right? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, you'll be able to see a, a map of the area and you can see it's right at the bottom and you'll see some of the streets you might recognize. But very quickly, it turns to farmland. So there's really? really not yeah yeah it's I didn't a really know that. small place yeah yeah it's I think it's probably big for the colonies it wouldn't be as big as say a London or Paris anywhere near that but it's still kind of a big place but compared to what it is today it's nothing really yeah fair fair yeah yeah okay now what we're going to do in this series is obviously we're going to explore some interesting stories for each of these cities at some interesting times but what we thought would be kind of fun and we've been, we've done a bit of research into into make sure these are accurate we're going to kind of start our stories with a walk through the streets of the cities during the time we're looking at so we can kind of get a give you an idea of the feel of the city what it would look like what it would the sort of people you'd be meeting if you were to walk through which we think is a kind of a fun way to talk about history we yeah. know, we're pushing ourselves out here we kind of came up with an idea we're running with it if you hate it tell us we well no we, we 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 heard your feedback about how you enjoyed how we dramatized some of the assassinations from last series and we've taken it on board and incorporated it into the main body of our yeah. podcast from now and so hope you enjoy it so for our first walkthrough we will be following a man called robert townsend as he walks through the streets of new york city cool robert townsend was a young quaker merchant uh he was kind of a respected loyalist in new york city thereby you know he is loyal to the crown uh, and is treated fairly by the british soldiers he's seen as you know he's not a rebellious person he's not joining with these patriots <laughs> these rebel scum rebel scum are, yeah. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you know and so he would be given kind of a lot of respect um by the the occupying british force but as he's making his way through the city he's actually on his way back to his, the coffee house that he part owns with his partner um which actually a lot of british soldiers are a big fan of so he's kind of he's a well-respected man in new york city uh, he would have lived there beforehand uh, before the british occupation although before and also while it was just under british rule um, as just a colony of the British Empire. But yeah, so he's being treated quite well. So as he's walking through the street, he would see kind of a range of different houses all around him, ranging from rough and tumble shacks housing the city's poor's poor and refugees from the war. A lot of um loyalist colonies sorry, a lot of loyalists across the colonies were actually flooding to New York to escape the war. So in the real like front lines of the war, you would have these uh, small towns which would be split you know some people would be in favor of the patriots and some people would be loyal to the crown 
people who are loyal to the crown would flood to New York City because it was a good place you could find work there, you could find protection, and you didn't think you were going to really be in any danger of the war because it's where all the British forces are. You're good that while away. Sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I think it, 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 it's sort of a good escaping point. And cities tend to be the focal points for refugees anyway because there's tends to be more space, there'll be more work. In theory, there's more food. However, that kind of starts becoming an issue when you get thousands of people coming in. And that is kind of what's happening in New York City at the moment. You've got lots of people. You've got all these soldiers. You've got all these refugees coming in. You have the citizens themselves. And so there's some kind of rougher parts of the city. And that's what these rough and, sh rough and tumble shacks would be uh, the largest makeup of. You know, there'd be a kind of a thriving black market going on there. There'd be some, you know, dodgy sellers, some prostitution, all sorts of things going on in there. Um, and kind of like a, a rougher atmosphere, kind of because of the war. You know, it's in it's in these times of war when these uh, criminals re can actually make a lot of money. I know there's this, all these facts about during the Blitz, crime went up loads in London. Yeah, it's the same thing I think in any city during war. Criminals can make a boatload because people are losing everything, and the rule of law is sometimes a bit more lax because the people in charge have other things to focus on. I guess so, and also uh, wherever a um, wherever an army goes, the camp followers follow, obviously, and those include prostitutes and, but also lots and lots of people who are, have access to army surplus, which they'll then sell at Absolutely. the expense of the army. So yeah, I can just imagine. And also, I was thinking about it: if you're putting thirty-two thousand troops into New York City, sorry, I had to say, um, you're going to have to billet them in people's mm. houses so that the officers might be sharing like the houses of some of the new york uh elites and yeah you know you can absolutely. just imagine people getting kicked out just to for the occupation i wonder if there was a bit of a kind of knock-on effect where you have you know british soldiers and british officers coming in and you know the high up british soldiers would be you know the, the top brass the the top officers would be living in large country estates not country estates large you know manor houses in the city but they would maybe knock those people already living there into a slightly lower class of house you know people have to move out move in with their family in slightly smaller accommodation then those people have to move in and it kind of has this effect all the way to the bottom where you have people very poor now being pushed out onto the street or yeah, into very the kind possibly. of what it, whatever uh, accommodation they can build you know on the streets and these kind of shacks so yeah and uh, an army occupying a city is always going to cause massive upheaval for the people living there and that's what robert townsend would be seeing as he walks through the streets he'd also see some more classic kind of wooden colonial houses uh if you've ever seen well i think i'll put a photo or a painting of this kind of time period it's this kind of standard uh, old world america <laughs> old world america is a, a weird way to say it but you know old-fashioned american houses timber buildings but very nice and uh still still a kind of level of middle-class richness to them um, affluency yeah yeah a bit it. of affluency and then he also might walk past uh the much more grand brick-built georgian manor houses that would have the british officers whining and dining and just having a ball you know or getting gout have, possibly having a ball yeah and getting gout you know <laughs> as they kind of just get drunk and decide oh what are we going to do with these rebels these 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 fools who are, where's my snuff us? box yes sorry <laughs> The city at this time, and we're looking at kind of 1780, so the war has raged on for about four years now. So, you know, the city has gone through a lot during this occupation. And the inhabitants of the city would be kind of an interesting mix. In the same way, and we're going to say this tons of times during this series, but because cities are always melting pots. But 
<laughs> New York City at this time was a bit of a melting pot. He would have seen, you know, the kind of standard citizens of the, the city and the surrounding area, the farmers and the merchants struggling to sell what little crops or livestock or goods they had to citizens who really didn't have much money to buy what they needed because everything was going to the war effort. A lot of the of produce would be going to soldiers and to the army, which would be bought at a kind of a base rate and not the best for farmers. You know, you don't really have a thriving... Uh, economy during war other than in these certain very specific sectors yeah he would obviously see dozens and dozens of british soldiers either patrolling through the streets in their kind of classic red coats and tricorn hats um, oh, the very yes. formal attire that uh, our soldiers and mo- actually the american soldiers similar t- similarly dressed were wearing at this time the idea of camouflage and you know hiding and you know and, and moving around uh, unseen wasn't really part of war at this time weirdly it was very much you stand in front of them you face your enemy with 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 clear you know you'd be picked out out of a mile wearing a bright red coat although maybe that was to hide blood i don't know well yeah yeah that is definitely a thing like um the british used red to hide blood because when when you get hit you couldn't te- not that you couldn't tell but your comrades to the left and right of you wouldn't be shocked by the sight of red because it was all red anyway. yeah yeah, but yeah, just yeah. to quickly say that there were, um, this is the first war which had camouflage because um, the um, the UK, sorry, the British forces had their very first rangers and the rangers wore blue, not blue, green, dark green oh, um, yeah. coats. Um, mm. And they um, th- that was the first time when they were being used um, for that. But yeah, you're right. It is this time where most fighting is going on between people in red coats against people in blue coats. Yeah, on a field of green so everyone can see everyone, which is, I guess, a kind of chivalrous way of fighting. You know, you don't... Underhanded... It's something we talked about um, in the uh, episode on ninjas from season two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. season season two. Um, This kind of irregular warfare, this kind of uh, unchivalrous, not honourable warfare of hiding. People, you know, the British army probably want to be seen as intimidating, which is actually a, a very effective tool in war. So, you know, they send their soldiers straight at the enemy and they just dominate them with overwhelming force and firepower. So no one is looking to hide. So you'd have these soldiers wandering through the street. Robert Townsend would be, you know, not... He wouldn't be really threatened by them because, as I say, he is a loyalist and is treated well. But you still don't want to piss off any British soldiers because they're kind of given a bit of the lay of the land. And they might get chastised by their officers, but they're needed for the war. And if they, you know, beat up or, or you know, harass the citizens of New York, they're not going to get in too much trouble, I don't think. No. But they weren't the only soldiers that would be there. As you said, there would have been rangers, which is kind of new force uh, that the British were using. But they were also bringing in mercenaries from the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which is modern-day Germany. And there were these kind of mercenaries that were collectively called the Hessians, which who were oh. garbed in a very kind of similar attire, but they were wearing blue coats, which I think is a bit weird because the rebels were wearing blue coats. But they were also they also had some very strange um, military uh, uniforms as well because their grenadiers wore these really tall military caps with ornate brass like front plates, which yeah. is a really weird thing. I feel like that's a really obvious way to you know highlight that you're there. But I guess maybe it's an intimidating tactic or something. I don't it know. It must be. Yeah, it's proper peacocking, isn't it? It, um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's, you know, maybe compensating having a really tall hat, but... <laughs> yeah, very true. Um, I, I do think that the fact that there were Germans there, or Hessians, they were um, 
the, the, the British uh, king, George III, was of the Hanoverian dynasty, so he was also king of Hanover. So he has links with the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, so well, that makes sense then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly there were Hanoverians there who were mercenaries, but they're in loyalty to their king. Or the, I don't know if it was King of Hanover or Duke of Hanover. I think it was a Dukedom of Hanover. Anyway, mm. long story short, yeah, just to put that in. Yeah, they're, well, they're, they're loyal to his money and no one else's money because they're still exactly. mercenaries, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. Something else that um, Townsend may have seen as well is actually a number of freed African-Americans because what's interesting during this war is actually looking at how the two sides treated slaves and treated African-Americans in general. Because what's what's quite interesting is that earlier in the war, Washington and the Continental Army were actually refusing to allow African Americans to enlist in their army, which is <laughs> not great. Yeah, they weren't presumably purely for very racist reasons, thinking well, that they didn't want them filling up their ranks. George Washington, Mount Vernon was a slave-run estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, everyone is kind of slavers here, so there's no there's no good guys uh, in no, slavery in at this sense. time. Yeah. But uh, the British actually did kind of what we considered... I mean, you could argue maybe that it's a, a, benevol a benevolent move, but it's probably just much more like low cunning because General Howe and the other top brass of the British army, they had decided to issue a proclamation that stated that any slave who managed to escape their patriot slave owners and make it to British territory would be freed. Ooh. So they kind of used this either to just suck manpower out of the Patriot forces. Suddenly all these uh, soldiers or these, you know, may possibly just these rich landowners were suddenly losing all their slaves because the British had forced this um, proclamation to go out, which a lot of, you know, top slave owners would be really annoyed about and maybe thinking, why are we doing this war? We're losing all our money and all our free labor. Yeah, the economy. There was yeah. crash. It would crash their economy. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is kind of more of a cunning move than it is, you know. And I'm sure the British would have been highlighting it's purely for, you know, humanitarian reasons. They want yeah. to seem like the good guys. But I think that's bollocks. They were just as happy to, you know, use these people as less than people. But they just thought this is a clever way of depriving the Patriots of a useful resource. I mean, that's what they thought. They, that's probably what they thought of Africa men at the time, just a resource, not really people. Sure. Which is really awful. Um, but not surprising given it's the British Empire. But what's interesting is actually over time during the war, both sides did start to enlist some African-Americans, but the British seemed to be way more okay with enlisting British soldiers. Sorry, way more okay with enlisting African-Americans into their army. In fact, nearly 20,000 African ex-slaves fought for the British during the entire revolution, whereas wow. only about 5,000 uh, fought for the Patriots. Really? So not that only, is interesting. yeah. So not only does the British already have this massive uh, advantage in terms of numbers, they are actually generating more soldiers out of the land they're trying to conquer by issuing this proclamation. So That's I think it's yeah, it's definitely they're just they're still, not being very, nice at all. It's clever. It's clever regardless. It is clever. It's nice or not. Yeah. Yeah. It is clever. So possibly as Townsend is moving through the city, he would see possibly some African-Americans looking maybe a bit lost and confused about their odd freed status. They still wouldn't be treated particularly nice, um, but they have this kind of uneasy freedom that they're not quite sure what to do with. And a lot of them would be heading, trying to head up to Canada, where freedom is a lot more secure. Or they would be enlisting in the British soldiers and seeing the British as possibly their saviours. Yeah, why really not? Weird kind of not great way 
But if that's what they, if that's how they saw it, then that's how they saw it. So we'll keep following Townsend as he makes his way through the city. He would pass the Hudson River, and for a moment or two, he might stop uh, and just you know pretend to look out across the river, taking a bit of a rake, taking in the sights. But what he'd actually be doing is possibly counting how many British warships are in the river. Not overly obviously. He'd actually be trying to be not noticed as much as possible. And as soon as possibly some other British soldiers come over, he'd move on straight away. You know, he doesn't want to be seen loitering around and watching British warships because that's quite a suspicious thing to do. Yeah, especially for a loyalist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Townsend finally makes his way back to his coffee house and he would feel he would find it filled and alive with customers. Lots of other coffee houses and places throughout the city might be a bit more run down, a bit more empty because a lot of people don't have money. But Townsend and his partner are serving British officers and British soldiers, which is the best way to be making money in the city at this time because they're the only ones who really have a lot of money. And so he'll walk into the he'll walk into his coffee house. He might nod or give a wave or even a couple of comments to some British officers and soldiers he's on first name basis with. They would treat him with a lot of civility. They are quite a big fan of him. They really like his coffee house. And he, he's kind of ingratiated himself with these, these British soldiers. But once again, he might pause for just a bit, perhaps pretend to pick up a few mugs, check the bar, you know, perhaps pretend to speak to someone. What he's actually doing is possibly eavesdropping on some interesting conversations that the British officers are having, which is very strange for a lawyer yeah. to be doing. <laughs> And he might just overhear something about some strange shipment of paper or material or something coming in, and he might just take a little mental note of that for, for yeah. some reason, unusually for a loyalist. <laughs> but as he moves on and makes his way back up to his apartment, that is our walkthrough complete. And if you are in any way suspicious of Robert Townsend, you should be, because Robert Townsend is in fact not a loyalist. He is a loyalist... <gasps> On the surface, but at his heart, he no. is a he is a rebel scum because he is actually a patriot spy spying on the British in no New York City. Way. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm sure I hit it really well. So Robert Townsend is part of what was known as and what would go on to be known as the Culper Spy Ring, which actually it's funny that you mentioned Turn earlier because that is a TV show that is entirely based on the Culper Spy uh, Ring, and actually there have yes. been a number of books about it, so I think this will be possibly a new story for, for people from Britain or anywhere else in the world, but if you're from America, you probably have heard a bit about this, because it's sure it's a bit yeah. of a famous tale over there, across the pond. Well, I was just thinking, like, um, as Townsend is a Quaker, as you mentioned earlier, Quakers can't drink, which is actually really useful I imagine, in a New York City filled with, as you say, balls. I'm not saying he'd be at the balls, but if he was down at like pubs where British soldiers are, he could like pretend to drink but against his religion, you know, so he'd be sober whilst yeah. these, these guys getting drunk and like telling you know, him everything. I think that's quite he'd also, He's also thing. got a reason not to drink. So, you know, everyone else, it's super suspicious someone not drinking. I think people who heavily drink yeah. If someone's not drinking and you know they should, it feels suspicious. I mean, this is also before, you know, drink driving and any limitations on drinking. So <laughs> before you'd the be motor car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you'd be suspicious of someone not drinking. But if they're a Quaker, you'd think, oh, that's just a religion. That's not fine at all. So it kind of does give them this perfect opportunity yeah. to eavesdrop on people or just learn more without seeming like he's trying to figure things out. 
So it kind of gives them this perfect excuse. And of course, he's got this coffee house, which it being full of British soldiers is probably serving tea. So he's picked like the perfect place to spy on British soldiers while they're being given their tea. I mean, absolutely. You know, if you know any Brit, if anyone isn't from Britain and you know any Brit, we we share all our secrets over over a brew, over a pot uh, a pot of tea, you know. Pot of tea, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the Culper Spy Ring was a network of spies active in New York during the occupation and set up by George Washington himself and a Major Benjamin Talmadge. Washington was very aware that he was fighting a war against this massive empire. He had fewer troops, fewer resources, less money. And he needed really credible information in order to make war effectively. He understood that without this kind of flow of information, he would just be blundering into every battle. They would be completely outmatched. And really good information can be so key to winning a war. What's quite interesting is actually, as I was learning about the Culp Aspiring, its similarities with breaking the Enigma Code in World War Two is oh, very yeah. similar, you know. It's these sort of things which actually are so crucial and can completely win a war, even more, maybe not even more, but even more than huge, uh, overwhelming numbers. Because yeah. you can still be an underdog, and if you can know what your enemy is doing, you can just fight so much more effectively. Information oh, cool. is king during war, and that's what Washington knew. Partly, I mean, maybe that's why Clever he, guy. Was, he did so well. Yeah. Yeah. So the first person that George Washington and Major Tormage recruited into the spy ring was a Long Island farmer by the name of Abraham Woodhull, who was actually friends with Benjamin Talmadge. And they kind of had this idea that spies, before now, spies had kind of just been scouts, essentially. You would send them out, they would do some reconnaissance on the enemy, they would hide uh, in trees or out in the woods and just watch from afar and then report back what they saw, ah. which is kind of a, that's kind of like the traditional idea of a spy. But what was happening is that these missions that they would send their spies out on were incredibly dangerous. And if all that happened is one man dies, you've lost your entire reconnaissance mission. So what sure. Washington and Talmadge were really keen on doing was setting up a network of informants, essentially, or a chain of information that could flow through. So it wasn't reliant on any one person, and they would use citizens who were already living in these areas. And Abraham Woodhull was one of these. He was a farmer from Long Island. And he had shown patriot leanings, and although he wasn't enlisted in the war he was he could be very openly loyalist just as robert townsend was these were already kind of planted informants and that's what they used to get information out and actually it's a lot more effective than just sending a scout out to find out what you need to know because they're inbuilt and they were already they've already garnered the trust and actually eavesdropping is a lot more effective than just being far away and just watching enemy movements because you can predict what they're going to do next as opposed to just reporting, reporting back what they're currently doing. That's true. And also because they are, as you say, they're already set in place. No one notices them because they've always been there. There's no movement. But I was just thinking yeah. that um, because they would, like if they caught spies who were scouts, the scouts would be in uniform. So they'd have to be treated better. But if you're caught, I, I know this because I was doing stuff on World War II about this. If you were caught not in uniform in enemy territory and they found you out to be a spy, you couldn't be protected by your army. So yeah, if you were, good point. So if you were caught, you were, you were fucked. Yeah, I, yeah. An informant is more of a traitor, whereas a spy slash scout is just an enemy soldier and it yeah. deserves a certain amount of respect. But these people were... 
pretending to be loyalists, and so from the British point of view, were loyalists who were turned traitor. Committing treason. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. You know, it, well, it's not the same thing. If you're an enemy combatant, you're treated with a certain amount of respect, but yeah. not these guys. So it's a huge amount of risk they were putting in, but they believed in the cause, which I think is a really big thing about this war. You know, lots of other times throughout history, wars are two very wealthy people sending their farmers at each other so they can steal a bit more of their land and get a bit higher taxes. That's what a lot of war is. <laughs> Broad but, brush, but I, I take your meaning. <laughs> I mean, I think, that's, I think that's fairly true. Whereas this had a bit more of a uh, a purpose behind of it, an ideal of being free and being independent from the empire. And so the, you have these people who would feel like it's their duty to put themselves at risk and risk being hanged as a traitor to transport this information. And yeah. it was hugely successful. So from Woodhull, the Culper Ring grew and grew. They started recruiting more people, and eventually they recruited Robert Townsend in 1779. Uh, as a part owner of a coffee house uh, full of loose-lipped British officers, he was kind of perfect. <laughs> His business partner, a man named James Rivington, was also a member of the Ring, and he was the owner of the Royal Gazette, which was a pro-Crown newspaper, which they Whoa. could use to actually publish secret messages to each other. So a kind of, you know, you write a uh, an article and the first letter of every of every line spells out something. I mean, yes. they probably were a bit more clever than that. <laughs> yeah, that one obvious. seems a bit easy. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the kind of things you're thinking. Or, you know, just this certain, like, imagery could be hiding uh, secret messages and they could use these kind of techniques to really get spread information quickly to uh, back up the chain so that Washington could then make decisions based on this. They also used some code names as well, because every good spy story oh, needs um, cool. code names. Abraham Woodall was known as Samuel Culper, which is actually where they get the term the Culper Spy Ring, which was supposedly uh, named after Culpeper County in Virginia, which was Washington's oh. idea, because that's back where he's from. So it, not entirely sure why he came up with that, but he just went, Let's just call you Samuel Culper. That's, that's your that's your code name. That's interesting because like if you think about the phrase Mayor Culper, Culper means fault, my fault. Like if you're culpable for something, you is that culp a with an a at the end? Yeah, yeah. But if you're culpable, that's that's yeah, yeah, that's, that's not that, that that's like you're guilty of something. So it's quite the interesting. Ring. That is weird. That's a weird kind of poetic. I mean, you know, as you were saying, George Washington, he was kind of a, a, a suave writer guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe he was like, oh, I'll be all clever and smooth with this we'll call them the culperspiring because they are culprits in this <laughs> they are they're all culpable i bet he was just he just sat to it he was just sat there like you know he should have on been the planning pipe, a war but, on yeah pipe. he was just toys were going culper <laughs> oh how witty i am because <laughs> uh, also he would have had a british accent like they all would have british accents they might be a slight uh, continental twang, but they wouldn't have American accents at this point. Really? Because they're still, I'm fairly sure. I mean, there would still be a kind of rural aspect to it, and they might have slight accents. But realistically, it's not been that long since. And it, a lot of these people would have been, only, you know, their parents may have grown up in Britain or other places of the empire. So they still have kind of posh yeah. British accents. So George Washington may have been, oh, yeah, oh, yes. Very funny. <laughs> oh, how witty I am. Yeah. So uh, another key figure in the Culper Spy Ring, which if you have watched Hamilton, you may know of, because another member of the Spy Ring was Hercules Mulligan, who was a friend uh. of Townsend's father, and he was actually a friend of Alexander Hamilton, which you'll know if you've watched Hamilton, because nice. he's one well, of the obviously. he's one of <laughs> he's one of the lads who kind of sings. Uh, he, I'm trying to think who because he, he's also because the same guy plays. 
He does uh, Madison. 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 Yeah, yeah. He's also Madison. So that's the guy we're talking about. But Hercules Mulligan, uh, he owned an upmarket tailors in New York City, um, which was also a perfect place to spy on British soldiers because British officers loved Needs. getting. You know. Yeah. You know they need they need their best coat. They need their best doublet for the next ball they're going to. So you know a kind of like a tea shop and a tailors. They knew what they were doing. They knew their enemy. They knew yeah, you how really to spy did, British officers. They? All you need is someone yeah. with like a, a walking stick shop and you're basically there. Maybe a monocle shop. <laughs> yeah, pipe a pipe shop or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there was also uh, supposedly, it's not 100% confirmed, but there was supposedly a woman part... A woman. A woman a part. <laughs> uh, um, a woman who was part of the Culper Spy Ring. A woman from Long Island named Anna Strong who would supposedly hang uh, clothes on her clothesline in a certain way to signal when certain other like couriers could come in and find hidden messages in trees. So there'd be like a number of different dead... What are they called? Dead drops. Dead drops. Yeah, dead yeah. drops. A number of different dead drops uh, hidden throughout Long Island. And she would, you know, give some sort of code from her clothesline and then the person coming to collect these would know exactly which one to go to from that. So you have these kind of... You know, it's it's people from all walks of life and people who are putting themselves in extraordinary danger to really protect uh, the revolution and really support Washington, which I think is really admirable and amazing. And then, you know, it's almost more than breaking the Enigma Code, which was a kind of like mathematical, like genius thing. But they weren't putting themselves in too much danger because they were just in Bletchley Park in Britain, you know, other than maybe the Blitz. <laughs> Whereas these people were being, they would be surrounded by British soldiers. And if, it, if they gave anything away, I mean, Townsend owned a coffee shop full of people who could hang him in an instant if they found out what he was doing. Yeah, So they're that's really true. remarkable people. They, they really are. They put their lives on the line for a cause. And that is admirable. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the information, the like crucial information the Culper Spy Ring found out was... Do you remember in the walkthrough when I said that Townsend might overhear about a shipment of paper that the British officers were talking about? Yeah. Well, I cunningly said that for a reason, because <laughs> I, I, I know how to you know structure a podcast because we've done this <laughs> enough. So one of the um, techniques the British were going to use to really destroy, again, kind of destroy the economy of the Continental Army, kind of similar to what they did about uh, freeing the black slaves, they had decided to completely devalue the British, sorry, the American dollar. So the American continent, oh. the continental, what are they called? The Continental Congress had started printing their own money, the American dollar. I think it's like continental dollars is what they were called at that time. And the British had the cunning idea to suddenly print thousands and thousands of <laughs> continental dollars to completely devalue the currency and oh. basically crash any chance the Congress had for paying for its own goods because they'd have to start using British pounds which doesn't really work if you're at war with Britain and this would have been and this could have crippled them I think it could have you know I'm not a revolutionary war historian but I imagine it could have ended the war I if wonder, they had done this yeah I wonder if that's the reason why dollars are now made of cotton maybe I don't know but if they were if they realised that you could like you can't tear cotton can you well maybe you can I well, don't know. I don't know if I don't know if British pounds at that time were also made of cotton. It oh, might it have could been. have been. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, it's yeah. more about like the specific type of because it would be cotton, like the specific like type of cotton. It would be like a it's almost different like grain paper. or something. Yeah, like a different yeah. grain. Like that has to be really specific. And then 
the details of the dollar. All of this has to be really specific in order to be legal tender and not seem like a counterfeit. But the British had got their hands on several reams of paper made for the last emission struck by Congress. So they had just released this new... Um, or they were just about to release a huge wave of new money, Congress, but like within their economic model, it wouldn't crash their system, anything like that. And the British had got their hands on the right paper, so Bloody they hell. could have completely destroyed them. But luckily, Robert Townsend overheard the British talking about this, was able to get a message back to Washington, who alerted the Congress, and they, I assume, changed the way they made the money. I'm not 100% sure how money is created and stuff like that. <laughs> but they were able to make a change significant enough where the reams of paper that the British had got were now useless and the British were unable to print fake money. Which wow, I think, I think completely saved them. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Which is a huge thing just from overhearing a, a conversation, which isn't what you would get from a kind of scout-style spy. You would just know troop movements. Whereas this kind of underhanded... It's subterfuge. It's, it's subterfuge. really clever. Yeah, yeah. It's irregular warfare. It's, it's you know, it's, it's the British being a bit underhanded for all their pomp and ceremony. They're kind of playing a bit dirty by trying to just destroy their economics as opposed to beating them on the battlefield. Yeah. Wow, that's really in impressive that he overheard that in a coffee shop and then it yeah. gets it actually changes the course of the war as a result. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the other, well, I think there was a few other different like important finds of the Cold Parade, but possibly the most important one they found was the pivotal role they played in ensuring when the war ended. So on the 11th of July, 1780, is that right? 1783 was the end of the war. Yeah, I know, but is that... Hang on. I need to double-check that because because uh, that seems... I mean, I'm sure I'm right, but I, and maybe it is, like, three years ahead. Because also the, the official end of the war isn't... Hang on. 1783 is when they march out of New York. And get yeah, but I, th and I think that's the, the war kind of ends before then, though. Um, right. It's ju that's just when they officially leave. Hang on, I, I, I just want to double check this because I feel like it would yeah, be bad fine. to get it wrong. Um, because it's Rochambeau, so I just need to look up him and see when he landed in. Seventeen eighty? No, I'm right. Yeah. I'm sure I'll still right. It's just he's he's there for it. He's there for like another year before they go they go to properly to war, and sure. then it's in, um, seventeen eighty one. I think is when they beat them. Something like that. I don't know. It's not important. That that date's right. So Battle of Yorktown is the last. One. Yeah, yeah. The Battle of Yorktown. Yeah, which I'm sure is in here, but I don't think I've, I haven't got a specific date for it. So yeah. So, on the 11th of July, 1780, a French force of approximately 5,800 troops landed in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, with the goal of helping Washington retake New York. So, there had been this alliance created between America and France, because, obviously, anyone the British are at war against, <laughs> France will want to join them. It's a bit like the old alliance with Scotland, where yeah. basically when, if we ever went to war with either Scotland or France, 
the other one would join and fight us in on the other end of the yeah, country. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they just had this like eternal pact that to uh, you know piss off the British. Yeah, you know, neither of us like the British. So whenever whenever the other one's got the chance to like the English gain, at that point. <laughs> the English, yeah, 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 good point. Whereas this is a bit more actually, it's a, it's like an upgraded old alliance because this is against the British. Yeah, but it's the same sort of thing. France sees an opportunity to help uh, take away one of America's like huge. Um, the 13 colonies had suddenly become very valuable. That's kind of what kicked off the war to begin with. The British suddenly realised how valuable uh, the 13 colonies had become. They'd become kind of very wealthy. And so yeah. then they started taxing them heavily and really like middle managing them and really kind of controlling them. That's what pissed off the Americans is that they wanted to, they wanted to be more free. And actually, if they'd stayed fairly poor, the crown would have left them alone. But it's when they started making money. And it's always that, you know, it's always the same thing. <laughs> It, 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 absolutely and actually it's, it's a bit of a funny thing although um they always go oh well you lost america uh, in terms of the actual history of the british empire it was the best thing to happen to it if you're a fan of empire because the first that was the end of the what they call the first british empire but the second british empire was the one which included india basically yeah. all focus went east and it became much more far more profitable and mm. um and by far, had that would not have happened had they still held on to the US. So it's a funny thing. Although the British lose it, it's actually the best thing for British interests in the long run if you mm. discount all of the, the shit stuff about empire, which is obviously very yeah. difficult yeah, to. Yeah. But at the time... Possibly not great yeah. for India because then they get they get our attention as opposed to America, which exactly. is not the best. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, French yeah. attention. But anyway, yeah, carry on. That's true. But so yeah, so the French have landed uh, a force in America in New York, in New sorry, in America in Newport, Rhode Island, ready to help Washington retake New York. However, Townsend has just learned from overhearing a conversation, or perhaps even as you say at the pub, talking to some British officers, yeah. and he's not drunk because he's a Quaker. But he finds out that British General Sir Henry Clinton was preparing to take eight thousand troops to attack this French force. Now, the French force were completely wiped out for about three months uh, at sea. You know, they would be seasick, they'd be completely worn out, they were in no fit state to fight. And no. so, I mean, the uh, Clinton it has a great idea. I'm just going to go wipe them out and then they're off the... But, like, this is the perfect time to attack. Mm, and so yeah. he starts moving out in the direction to take them on and will probably surprise them and just completely destroy them. But because Townsend finds that out, he is able to send a message back up through the chain to Washington, who is then able to... He doesn't alert the French, possibly because he doesn't have time. So instead, Washington takes a big force and moves against Clinton. And Clinton suddenly realised, oh, OK, this has got a bit too hot for me. I thought I was just fighting a few thousand, you know, tired Frenchmen. Now I've got Washington and half his army coming down on me. I need to back the fuck up. So he runs back to really? New York. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's t like he thought he was being clever. He's like, oh, I'll nip this in the bud. You know, he might want to impress. That General would have Howe made sense. Like, Divide and conquer. It's the first rule of war. But like, yeah, it's while while you have this like this number of and you know it, it it's a good force, five thousand eight hundred troops, and these will be you know kind of battle hardened Frenchmen. Yeah, these are they'd be a huge boon to to the patriots. And so Clinton's like, I've got this. I'll just knock them out. But then when he sees Washington rolling over with his, with his huge, much bigger army, it's not a huge bigger army, but you know, it's suddenly a bit too hot for Clinton's taste. So he scurries back to New York, which allows 
the French force to recover and meet up with Washington. And what's really crucial about this is that the French force are led by General Jean-Baptiste Donatien de Vimeur Comte de Rochambeau. Rochambeau! Who is the French commander who aids Washington at the decisive Battle of Yorktown that won the war. So without Townsend and the Culp Aspiring, there wouldn't have been any French for sport, there wouldn't have been a victory at Yorktown, and there possibly wouldn't have been a United States today. Well, I, I mean, yeah, it could have been a different different battle, maybe, but you're right. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah, a different battle. Actually, but it could have swung. You know, Yorktown was a huge victory, and as far as I'm aware, they wasn't they weren't in any way guaranteed to win. It was kind of you know they they'd brought themselves back a bit, but it was st- it still could have gone either way. Whereas Yorktown was such a decisive victory, and mm. would it have been so decisive or even a victory at all without those French aid? Like, no, it's, I, it, I don't. Well, I don't know enough about the the, the history, but. It, you, as you say, it's it's a, a crucial piece of information. By saving the French force, they keep the uh, the hopes of a revolution alive, and mm. it and it pays off in dividends. And France becomes their ally, which they might not have stayed as an ally if they'd sent troops, and then Washington had done nothing as the British forces just True. wipe out their five. That you know, it's it it really there'd be a lot of French, uh, I guess, courtiers because you still have the king. You know, oh, yeah. suggesting why are we sending our troops just to get decimated by the British overseas? Whereas securing a massive victory, they'd be like, we need to support these small colonies because they're great. Look at us. We just together we defeated the British, which to the French, there's no better celebration than defeating the British. Yeah, I would just say, though, that um, and this isn't controversial, but and it's only one opinion. But by joining the US war fight for independence, it actually bankrupted royalist France and ended up in their own revolution because they'd bankrupted the country. It led to the end of monarchy. I'm not saying that's a, a bad thing, but it was for the French king who made that decision. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Louis yeah. I'd, say it's probably, I'd say it's probably a good thing. I well, mean, I yes, know, I know there's the now. whole, you know, years of terror and, you know, the, the, the horrors of the French Revolution. But exactly. overall, it probably made a slightly better and, you know, triggered the possibly more democratic world we live in at the moment. I mean, you know, this is... Huge speculation. We need to be a lot more qualified world historians to do this. But, you know, without Robin Townsend, there wouldn't be a victory at Yorktown. There wouldn't be a victory by the Patriots. Possibly there wouldn't be a French Revolution. And we possibly might not be living in democracy today. So what a hero this guy was. There's a hot take for today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, yeah, the Battle of Yorktown, decisive victory for Washington, In 1783, the British officially leave New York and the British occupation is over. And that's kind of the end of the Culp Aspiring as well. They're no longer really needed. Um, And actually what's interesting is the ring itself, it was so successful at remaining secret. No one was ever caught during that time. And it wasn't actually even until 1929 that it was even officially known about it. I mean, imagine maybe, you know, in the hidden archives of the president they might have details because presumably Washington would have noted all of this down and then left it to his uh, his successor John Adams. that would have been passed yeah, on. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So there might have been, you know, the deep archives in, what was it, the Library of Congress. Maybe there was information in that. But to the public, it wasn't until 1929 that That's the details incredible. of the spy ring were released. That's so, yeah. a very so successful spy ring right there. Yeah, it's really amazing. And I think there had been possibly some ideas that some of the members were spies. So I think uh, Abraham Woodall was kind of assumed possibly a spy. 
But Robert Townsend was not revealed to be a spy until this very late date. So wow. it is a remarkable story and a brilliant spy story because they completely get away with it. And they basically, I think, kind of win the war. And yeah. are the reason we live in a democracy right now, which I think is pretty great. Yeah, if we were in America, I'm not sure they... <laughs> yeah, I know, but we're, we're... I mean, yeah, maybe, I suppose we'd already kind of had a part We already that had one, that, so yeah. We... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe that doesn't quite fit as well. But I'm saying it, I don't care. For you American listeners, you can thank the Culp Aspiring for your democracy. Yes, but at that absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, so it is an extraordinary time uh, in New York history, this this period of British occupation. And yeah, I mean, it's 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 an amazing bit of world history, actually, as well, because I know that Americans love harping on about how important it is. But it is an amazing thing for, you know, a bunch of, uh, I was going to say farmers, they're not really farmers, but landowners, you know, not royalty to suddenly rise up and throw off the, the shackles of the largest empire that's ever ruled, ever. So <laughs> yeah, it, is, it, it is pretty impressive. And, and I, I, you know, makes sense why they make such a big hullabaloo on 4th of July. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so that is my story for, for New York. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you found it interesting. Yeah, I certainly did. It's a really good thing. And, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think that there's been so much made of it and there's, there's so much to, to watch and listen to about it. But um, my favourites have to be Hamilton and Turn. So if you're looking for things yeah, to watch, yeah. if you haven't already Absolutely. watched Living Under a Rock or something, um, yeah. go see that if you can. So, Will, we have now finished with uh, British occupation, 1776 to 1783, New York. Next week, we will be moving forward in time. Where are we going next with New York? Well, we will be going as far forward as another war. It's another wartime story of New York, but this war was the Second World War. And uh, something happened which I don't think very many people will have heard of. And this is when all our... Well, I don't even know if we have any New Yorkers listening. This is when all the New Yorkers uh, ring in and go... Uh, actually, we all know this, but uh, it was new <laughs> to me, and it's a it's a fascinating story. So I look forward to telling you all about it next week. And thank you guys so much for listening. And you can catch us on at Cloak and Dagger Podcast on Instagram, and tell some friends, and we will uh, be very grateful to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you can uh, rate and uh, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're on a variety of different places. You can leave if you have a great thing to say. Just copy it and put it in all of them because you know I think I think that's just a nice thing to do. Yeah. Just think of like the small things you do that can change history as we know. I mean, Robert Townsend just listened to a conversation in a coffee house and he changed the world. Think about what you could change by leaving a review on a history podcast that you really like. Yeah, yeah that that kind of tracks. I love a little that. bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much for listening. See you guys next week.